Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to, 30, 36 to 49. You can find that in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 832. And we are right on the table. We're on, we're on the... We're right at the finish line of the, the Gospel of Luke. We've been studying this book since 2016, off and on, and uh, so we're, we're finished. Way to go. You guys made it. This is, uh, this is exciting. So we have this passage today, and then we have one more passage we're going to deal with next week, which is the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, back to the right hand of the Father, uh, where he is at right now, today, at the moment, for for. Uh, for that matter. So we're going to you know, look at this text where Jesus appears to his 11 disciples, uh, speaks to them, uh, you know, confronts some doubt and unbelief that's lurking in their, uh, in their hearts, uh, can, you know, assures them of the reality of his resurrection, and also gives them, you know, instructions, exhortations on how to overcome doubt uh, in, in their lives. We're going to look at that this week. We're going to look at the ascension of Jesus next week. Uh, and then we'll be then we'll be done with with uh, the longest sermon series that we've that we had during my, my tenure here. So that's exciting. Uh, I'm going to jump right in and read Luke 24 36 to 49, and then we will pray and get to work. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood up among them and said to them, "Peace be to you." But they were startled and they were frightened and they thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they still disbelieved for joy. And they were marveling and he said, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning grateful for the privilege that it is to gather as the people of God, listen to the word of God, sing about the glory of God, uh, celebrate, take the elements and and remember the gospel of God. We just are are grateful um, for the great privilege that it is to to be Christians and to get to, to be reconciled to God and to be here gathered with the people of God. We thank you and we pray. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here We pray that you would do that which only you can do, that you would convict us of sin, that you would assure us of the pardon that is ours in Christ. We we pray that you would encourage our hearts in the gospel of Jesus. And it's in his it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll start in verse thirty six. As they were talking about these things, 
Jesus himself stood among them. We're still, we're still on Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. Right? If you kind of track with the, the modifiers in Luke 24, we see it was early that morning, it was later that day, it was the, it's getting closer to the evening. So now it's, it's late at night, but it's still the very first Easter Sunday, and now all the disciples are getting a visit from the risen Christ. And he says to them, peace be to you, peace be with you, peace to you. But they are startled, and they're frightened, and they thought that they had seen uh, a spirit. So again, uh, if you kind of track through the, the chapter 24, uh, the evidence is starting to pile up. It's starting to, to mount, right? The, the women had seen the empty tomb. They had seen an angel. The angel had told them that Jesus is alive. Uh, Peter himself had gone to the tomb and verified that the tomb was empty. Peter himself had seen the risen Christ. He had experienced uh, an appearance of the risen Christ. He saw the tomb was empty. He saw Jesus. The two other disciples that are not part of the 11, but the two other disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, and they uh, had an encounter with the risen Christ. And so multiple people, their, their, their testimonies are starting to corroborate each other. Multiple people are saying, the tomb is empty. The angels have told us that Jesus is alive. We saw Jesus. We saw Jesus. He's telling us that he is alive. At, at, this, at this point, there's mounting evidence, so much so that um, even... Uh, even a, a skeptical person is, is going to maybe start to concede at this point. They're going to start to believe at this point. So one might expect the 11 disciples, right? If there's enough evidence that even a skeptic would start to believe, one might expect that the 11 disciples would be quick to believe. They would be, uh, you know, re- ready, right, with, with their, their, a hair trigger, ready to believe, because they're also, not only are they hearing all of these independently corroborated testimonies, but now they're seeing Jesus themselves. They're, they're seeing the resurrected Christ uh, in, in person. You'd expect them to believe, and they uh, don't. They, they uh, have doubts. Even the strongest most faithful people. I mean, again, the, the, the 11 disciples, these are bulwarks. These are, you know, these are, are strong men of strong faith. Their, their names are going to be immortalized for all of eternity for being some of the most faithful and courageous and, and strong followers of Jesus that there ever have been. These 11 men. And, and even they are racked with doubt and with fear. And with unbelief. We live in a world that celebrates strength and it celebrates power and it celebrates confidence and it celebrates self assuredness. It despises weakness. It has no place for fear. It has no place for uncertainty. Right, you have to you have to have strong convictions. You have to be able to stand up to the onslaught of everyone that disagrees with you, and you have to be louder and more confident than them. There's no place for weakness. There's no place for doubt. There's no place for uncertainty. It's the world we live in. That's the air that we breathe. And if we're not careful, we'll internalize that and conclude that there's no place in our hearts. There's no place in our lives. There's no place in the Christian life for fear or for uncertainty, or for struggle, or for doubt. Or worse, we might come to the conclusion that if we experience fear, or uncertainty, or struggle, or doubt, then that's it. 
game over, right? Throw in the towel, walk away. Clearly doubts like these are not welcome here. Everyone else has it all together. They don't experience doubt like I am right now. I'm the only one who feels this way, thinks these things. Maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. Maybe I'll just walk away from the faith. Friends, doubt and uncertainty and fear and anxiety. Experiencing these things are part of what it means to be a human being. And they were experienced by the strongest, most faithful believers that the church has ever known. Fear, doubt, anxiety, these are not, these aren't, these aren't, uh, you know, these aren't the characteristics of a non-believer per se. They're, they're the characteristics of a creature. They're the characteristics of a human being with a finite perspective and with a finite understanding. And we're not going to live a life that's completely free of any inkling of doubt and fear until we arrive in the presence of Jesus in, in eternity. So between now and then, we kind of need to live in this tension where um, we push back against this notion that says, I can never experience doubt, I can never experience fear. If I do, then I must not be a real Christian. If I do, then I might as well walk away from the faith. We need to cultivate a posture that says, doubt is real, fear is real. These things are experienced by the strongest of believers who are armed with the most compelling of evidence. So if I experience them, I don't need to panic. Provided that, I respond rightly to them. Provided that, that uh, you know, fear and, and doubt uh, push me, they don't push me away from God, they don't push me away from the faith, they don't push me toward self and toward the world, but rather they push me toward God. They push me toward uh, a, a path of, of persevering in the, in the faith. So we shouldn't uh, be, we shouldn't panic if we experience doubt or if our loved ones experience doubt. But we should be careful to respond rightly to doubt and we should exhort our loved ones to respond rightly to doubt, which is what Jesus does. Jesus confronts their doubt. He acknowledges their doubt. He points it out, he puts his finger on it, and he asks them about it and, and in no uncertain terms. Verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He, what he doesn't say is, oh my goodness, I can't believe what I'm hearing. I, right, he's, he's not clutching his pearls and, and you know, gasping in exasperation. I can't believe that you would do that or say that. But he does point it out boldly and, and you know, he confronts it. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? And the question itself uh, is, Jesus' question is essentially him, he's, he's confronting the fact that they are doubting, but he's also calling them to examine their own doubts with a degree of skepticism. Take the same skepticism that your doubts are trying to get you to apply to the gospel 
and instead take that skepticism and apply it to the doubts themselves. Doubt your doubts, uh, as it were, right? Why are you troubled? Why, like, why don't you take a moment and think about why these doubts are arising in your hearts? Doubt wants us to say, what makes you think that you can trust God's word? What makes you think that it's really true? Right? How do you know that it is true? What if it's a fraud? What if you've built your life on a fraud? What if you're believing in a lie? What if Christianity is one big, long con? Right? What if, what if you know, it's being, you're, you are the victim of someone trying to deceive you and make you do what they want you to do? Doubt is, that the strategy of doubt is to ask questions, lingering questions, poke holes, try to find some vulnerabilities. Doubt is not, like, the, the mistake that we might believe would be that doubt is this neutral, objective, third party that's just asking innocent questions about, about our faith. But that's not what doubt is. Doubt is a competing faith claim that it itself, doubt itself, is just as much subject to scrutiny and doubt, as it were, uh, as, as faith, right? So it's not like there's faith and, and it makes sense to doubt faith and doubt is, is, a, is an objective, you know, questioning of that faith. No, there's, there's faith and there's doubt, both of which are faith claims, right? To, to say that God exists and that God has spoken and that God's word is true takes faith to believe and to say that those things are not true takes faith to to believe, right? Doubt is not neutral. Doubt is a competing faith claim. It's not saying, it's not, it's not simply saying, don't believe in God, don't believe in the gospel. What it's saying is, put your faith and trust in someone else, something else. Put your faith and your trust in yourself. Put your faith and your trust in the world instead of in the gospel. So once we come to see that that doubt is as much a faith claim, it requires faith just as much as the, the faith, the, the, the gospel that we're, that we're trying to believe, then we can kind of hold them up to similar levels of scrutiny. We can doubt our doubts in the same way that our doubt wants to make us doubt our faith. You can ask questions like, what is it that makes me think this doubt is trustworthy anyway, right? Uh, I, I may be uh, struggling uh, to believe the Word of God, but why should I believe what my doubts are leading me to believe? Why should I trust what my doubts are telling me about the Word? Like, why do my doubts have any more credibility in my heart than God and His Word, right? Why, what, what, I should subject both of those to similar levels of, of scrutiny, so if we, if we do what Jesus is saying here, if we kind of look at our doubts and, and doubt them, you know, we end up looking at our own heart, looking at our own self, and, and talking to ourselves rather than, than listening to ourselves, right? Look at your heart and you say, why are you troubled? Why are doubts arising within you? The psalmist in Psalm 42 says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why 
Is there turmoil within me? And then he, he instructs and exhorts himself, Hope in God, for I shall again praise my God. So, the psalmist in Psalm 42, as well as Jesus here in Luke 24, are giving us a prototype, a, a, you know, a, an, an example of doubting your doubts, speaking back, pushing back, pressing back against your doubts, confronting your doubts, defying your doubts, talking to yourself instead of listening to yourself, and ultimately exhorting yourself with the truth of God's word. Verse 39, he continues, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he's like, look, if you're doubting that I really was raised from the dead, Look, see, feel, touch me. I have, I have flesh. I have bones. I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a manifestation. I'm not a figment of your collective imagination. I'm a real person with a real, albeit new and glorified, but nevertheless real body. And they still believed. Verse 41. Well, they still disbelieved for joy. They were marveling. Right. So they're still... Having trouble, right, right? Jesus said he was going to die and be raised from the dead. Uh, we multiple people have said that they've seen the risen Christ been raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. There's tons of evidence, and we're still having difficulty believing what we are seeing. We're still wavering. We're still falling back into unbelief. And Jesus said to them, "All right, like I told you to touch my hands, my feet, my my side. Feel that I have flesh and bones." I'll, I'll do you one more. Do you have anything to eat? Go, you, you can't touch a ghost, a spirit, a figment of your imagination and feel real flesh and real bones. Also, you can't give a piece of real food to a ghost, spirit, figment of your imagination and have it eat it and digest it. So he says, give me a piece of fish and I'll eat it and digest it right here uh, in front of you. Like, like tr- tr- you know, reiterating over and over I am a real person, a physical person. I have a body. I have flesh and bones. Jesus is, is making it very clear here that my resurrection was not... You know, there are theologians that say, sure, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that, that the disciples thought there was a resurrection, right? We believe, we believe that John, we believe that Peter saw the risen Christ. We just don't know if, like, if they had a camera, if someone was there with a camera and you snapped a picture, that, you know, maybe they, like, saw him. Like, you know, people see things in their dreams or or whatever. And Jesus is saying, that's not what the resurrection is. The resurrection is not a figment of someone's imagination. It's not a spiritual, ethereal, metaphorical thing that happened. It's a real, physical thing that happened in time and space. Jesus rose bodily, physically from the grave. And that's important. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is important. Jesus goes out of his way to stress it in the Gospels because he thinks it's important. Because there's a number of implications about, about the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. It tells us things about our own future resurrection as believers. It tells us uh, it has implications for heaven and eternity and what that will be like. Right? Um, if, if Jesus' resurrection was a physical and bodily resurrection, then ours will be. Which again, so, so uh, now we can kind of look at our understanding of, you know, 
there's a misconception in a lot of Christianity that, that heaven is this uh, ethereal, metaphysical, spiritual place. We'll all be these translucent beings, ghost-like apparitions floating around on clouds with little chubby babies playing harps, things like that. Right? We die, our body's buried, or it's cremated, or whatever. Our consciousness moves on, our spirit, our soul, our essence moves on to some other place that we call heaven. And that's not what the Bible teaches about heaven. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that heaven is some other place, this non-physical place where non-physical beings experience consciousness together. The Bible teaches that heaven and that eternity uh, will take place right here on this on earth in this this world it'll be redeemed it'll be remade refashioned back into the world that god created it to be and that god intended for it to be in genesis chapter 1 in revelation 21 john is describing the new heavens and the new earth and he describes this eternal heavenly city that descends down and settles down and is installed here in the world on the on the planet earth so, and it has physical dimensions. Like John actually gives you the, the physical dimensions of this eternal heavenly city where God will dwell and where God's people will dwell. So the message of the gospel is not, you know, you get saved and then you leave. You leave the earth, you go to some other place called heaven and you exist there as a ghost. The message of the gospel is that you get saved and then eventually God comes here to earth and God redeems earth and God recreates earth and God makes earth back into what he originally intended for it to be and we live with God and we experience God's creation. We enjoy the unmediated glory and presence of God right here in this world as we were originally intended to. And so Jesus' bodily, physical resurrection is a, is a precursor to that. It, it, it points to the future physical redemption, recreation of this world that will, that will take place in the eternal state. It also, right, there, the other implica- there are other implications as well, namely that, like, this physical things matter, right? There are there are other religions or there are some streams within Christianity that, that, that more or less teach or imply that there are physical things and, and there are physical things and there are spiritual things. There are sacred things and there are profane things. That, right, right, anything physical is of little to no consequence because it's not going to last, but anything spiritual matters. And the, the, the fact that Jesus rose physically and bodily from the dead kind of pushes back against that and kind of, uh, you know, makes it very clear that, that the physical world matters. Our physical bodies matter. So we shouldn't abuse them. We should treat them well. We should be healthy, eat right, exercise. This world, the physical world matters. It's going to live on for all of eternity, just like our physical bodies are going to live on for all of eternity. So treat it well. Don't abuse it, right? Recognize that this world is God's creation. We should care for it. Treat it well as a matter of stewardship. Right? So, so going outside, being in nature, going for a walk, planting a garden, enjoying God's creation, investing in God's creation, right? uh, refusing to live intentionally in a way that does harm 
to the creation that God has entrusted to us, these are all spiritual matters. It's not like there's spiritual and there's physical and those things are, are just completely opposite, right? Living as a physical being in this physical planet is a spiritual act. It matters. And it matters because Jesus was raised from the dead physically and, and bodily. So, so far, first seven verses or so, Jesus shows up, right? Jesus speaks to his disciples. They are racked with doubt and fear and unbelief. And they don't know how to process what they are seeing from their rabbi, from their savior, from, from Jesus. And he confronts their doubt and he exhorts them to, you know, doubt their doubt, as it were. But then in the next few verses, in verse, uh, verse 44 and following... He's going to give us some practical tools, some practical things that we should do when we are experiencing doubt that will help us to overcome it, help us to push back against it, and help us to persevere in the faith instead of succumbing to and and being overcome by doubt. First one we see in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the first point of application, right, the first practical tool that Jesus gives his people to overcome doubt is to throw yourself into the word of God. Immerse yourself in scripture, read it, study it, meditate on it, saturate yourself in it, right? The first thing Jesus does is point their attention to the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the Old Testament, just like he did, we saw last week, with Cleopas and his uh, companion on the road to Emmaus. Jesus reminds the 11 disciples now how he himself, the Messiah, the Savior, how he is the central figure of the Old Testament. He's the hero of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the law of God. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies that were spoken by the prophets. He's the Savior, Messiah, that was anticipated by every single book in the Old Testament. Jesus reminds them all of that. Friends, if you are experiencing doubt, If you're not now, then in the future, if and when you do experience doubt, if you're having trouble believing that God is good, or believing that God is who he says he is, or believing that God exists at all, then the last thing you should do is put your Bible on the shelf, stop reading it, stop interacting with it. According to Jesus, when you experience doubt, the first thing you should do is throw yourself into the scriptures all the all the more. Consume it, read it, right? Commit yourself to reading it more faithfully than you did in the past. Read a chapter a day, take notes on it, meditate on it. Study the Bible, ask questions of it. What does this text tell me about God? What does this text tell me about myself? What does this text tell me about my sin? What does this text tell me about the person and work of Jesus? What does this text tell me about the grace of God? Is there a sin that I need to confess? Is there a command that I need to obey? Is there an attitude that I need to change? Is there an error that I need to avoid? Is there a truth 
that I need to believe, right? The first thing that Jesus wants us to do if and when we experience doubt is throw ourselves into the Word of God, commit ourselves afresh to reading Scripture, wrestling with it, interacting with it. Go to a fellow church member, invite them to read through a book of the Bible with you, meet together, discuss it with them, encourage one another, exhort one another. If you're experiencing doubt or fear or unbelief, Throw yourself into the reading of God's Word. What we see in verse 45, though, is is that that in and of itself is not enough. Right? So, if you're experiencing doubt, fear, unbelief, if you're struggling in your faith, your first step should be to immerse yourself in the Word of God. But immersing yourself in the Word of God in and of itself is not necessarily sufficient because... We need to have the Holy Spirit open our eyes. We need to have God himself, through his sovereign grace, work in our hearts, work in our souls, give us eyes to see, give us the gift of faith. Verse 45, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. There's a lot of people that have spent a lot of time reading the Bible, but their reading the Bible has not necessarily translated into any sort of deep, meaningful, transformational, spiritual change. Read the Bible as an academic pursuit. Maybe they read the Bible with an, uh, a critical, skeptical eye looking for a way to discredit it. Maybe they read it for entertainment value because they think the stories are fun or funny. So, so, so they read the Bible, but they never actually meet God in the Bible. So it's not enough just to read the Bible. We need to read the Bible and we need to have God sovereignly meet us and open our eyes as we read. This is what uh, Jesus talks about in John 5. He rebukes the religious leaders in Israel. He says, you search the scriptures, right? You read the Bible. You do what I said in verse 44. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that you have eternal life. You think that eternal life is found through simply read, as, as if your eyes going across the ink on the page is enough to warrant you, grant you eternal life. You, script, you search the scriptures and you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is the scriptures that bear witness about me, Jesus, and yet you refuse to come to me, Jesus, so that you may have life. So you can read the Bible, cover to cover, memorize it. You can have a PhD in the Bible still be far from God, still be overcome with doubt and and fear and unbelief because reading the Bible is not an end in and of itself. Reading the Bible is a means to an end. It is the means by which we come to see God, experience God, right? Enjoy and, and, and experience the presence and the glory of God. But in order for that to happen... In order for us to see and experience the glory of God as we read his word, we need God to make that happen. We need God to open the eyes of our heart. We, need, we, can't, we can't will open the eyes of our heart. We can't manufacture spiritual renewal in our soul. That's something that God has to do. So if the first step is to 
throw yourself into the Word of God, immerse yourself in it, read it, study it, then the second practical application would be to pray that God would open the eyes of your heart. Pray that God would give you the gift of faith. Pray that God would overcome your doubt and your fear and your unbelief. Immerse yourself in the Word of God, and as you do, pray that God would open your eyes and enliven your heart. As you sit down to read the, read the Bible, right, pray. Father, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your intervention in my life and in my heart. I need you to open the eyes of my heart. I need you to give me the gift of faith. Apart from you, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my heart, convicting me of sin, assuring me of your grace, right? overcoming the doubt and fear and unbelief in my soul apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my heart, I have no hope, no ability to will myself to get to God, no ability to see my need for God, no ability to see the sufficiency of God, no ability to appreciate or see or savor the glory of God. So, so God, Holy Spirit, I need you Please give me the gift of faith. Please overcome the fear and the doubt that is in my heart. Right? This is why the man says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's the posture. When we experience doubt and fear and unbelief, that's the posture that we need to have. As we go to the scriptures, as we go to God's word, we need to have a posture of, I believe, but help my unbelief unbelief. Read God's word, pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. And then the third, a third practical tool for overcoming doubt in our lives, we can see in verse 46. They said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So one, read your Bible. Two, pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes. Three, gaze on, look to, behold the person and work of Jesus. Behold, look to, experience, enjoy. Look to Jesus who has come to you and accomplished your salvation, suffered in your place for your sins, satisfied the wrath of God, been raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, gives new life to his people, right? Go to God's word, pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see and behold Jesus Christ. Anything else, according to Jesus, anything else, and you've missed the point of what the Bible was trying to show you anyway. If you, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Ten Commandments, if you read the 600 plus other laws and commands that are in the Old Testament, and you walk away thinking, okay, good to know. I, now I know what God wants from me. Now I know what I need to do in order for God to love me. Now I know what I need to do in order to please God. Now I know, I, I, I get it. Let's go ahead and get to it. If you, if you read the Bible like that, you've missed the point of the Bible. 
We read the Bible, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see Jesus in the Bible, so that we come away from the Bible not thinking, now I know what I need to do in order to please God, but rather, now I know what the righteousness and holiness of God requires of me. Absolute moral perfection, right? God's requirements are that every word of mine should be a sinless word. Every deed, every action should be a sinless action. Every thought should be a sinless thought, right? Every motivation. I should be constantly loving God and loving my neighbor. So when we come away from the Bible, we shouldn't be thinking, now I know what I need to do to please God. We should be thinking, now I know what God requires of me. Now I know how far short of that standard I have fallen. Now I know how desperately in need of a Savior I am. Now I know how desperately I need someone to fulfill the law of God for me. Now I know how desperate I am to have someone take the punishment that I deserve for having broken God's law. Now I know how badly I need someone to come to me, live the perfect life that I failed to live, die the sacrificial death in my place that I deserved to die, rise from the dead, save me, reconcile me to God, bring me to heaven forever. Now I know how badly I need that. We come to the Bible, we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, we pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus, see our need for Jesus, and see Jesus' provision of grace that we need. And the beauty of it is, like, seeing Christ, seeing the centrality of Christ in all of scriptures, and and dwelling on, meditating on, gazing on, beholding Christ, in my experience, tends to have a heart-warming effect. has a heart-softening effect. It has a doubt-overcoming effect. When, when When a broken sinner at the end of themselves when they see themselves as standing in the path of God's oncoming wrath, about to be crushed and destroyed forever, and when they see that Jesus has come to them, taken their punishment for them, so that they can be saved, that has a, a, a heart warm. I've never, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have experienced in, doubt in any number of different varieties and manifestations for any number of reasons. I've never heard someone say, I can't bring myself to believe in or love or appreciate a God who would become a man and live a perfect life in my place, take my punishment, die on the cross for me, be raised from the dead to give me new life and eternal life. I'm, I'm experiencing crippling doubt about that man. I've heard people communicate doubts about all kinds of things. I can't, right? I read a science textbook. I can't believe that, you know, it, 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 I, I'm having difficulty, you know, reconciling the Bible and science. How old is the earth? Was there a garden? Adam, Eve, flood, Noah. What about miracles, right? I'm experiencing doubt because of these things. 
I'm experiencing doubt because the doctrine of hell is, is unsettling. Right? I, have, I have objections to the idea that God would punish, right? God would create a finite being and then allow that being to live a finite number of years. And then if that finite being does not respond the way that God wants him to, then God will punish that finite being for that finite transgression for an infinite number of, of an infinite timeline thereafter. I, I, I can't, I'm having difficulty, I'm, I'm doubting. I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. Or, I don't know, I'm, I'm having doubts about Christianity because of what it teaches about morality, sexual morality, LGBT, right? I don't know if I have it in me to believe in a God, uh, you know, a religion that teaches that homosexual behavior is wrong or that, that presumes to stand in judgment over my friends and what they're doing in the privacy of their own home with other consenting adults or, you know, or, or I have doubts because I knew or I know Christians who were jerks. I, I don't know if I can believe in a religion where, right, clergy members abuse children and then the church covers it up, right? The church, you know, uh, uh, bullies people into giving them money so that it can use that money to pay for the defense of the clergy members that are abusing children, right? I don't, plus... You know, I don't know if I can believe in a religion that's like that. I, uh, Christians don't, don't look exemplary to me, so I don't know that I can believe in Christianity. My neighbor says he's a Christian. He kicked my dog. I don't know if I want to be a, right, he, right, I don't know if I can believe in Christianity. I don't know if I can believe in Christianity because of all the evil and suffering that I see in the world, right? How can God be all-powerful like the Bible says that he is? How can God be all-loving and all-good like the Bible says that he is with all the evil and suffering in the world? If God's all-powerful, then he would be able to rid the world of suffering. If God's all-good, then he would be willing or desirous desire to rid the world of evil and suffering. And yet, I look around the world and I see evil and suffering. I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. Right? I've talked to a lot of people experiencing doubt for any number of reasons. You probably have too. But do you see the recurring theme that runs through all of those doubts that I just mentioned? Or maybe put another way, do you see what was conspicuously absent from all of those doubts? It's Jesus. Right? All, almost everyone I've ever spoken to about doubts about the Christian faith, they, have, they, they, they don't have doubts about Christ, they have doubts about some thing, either, either something that is very close to the center and inherent to the Christian faith or something that's very ancillary, but, but very few people I've spoken to with doubts have doubts about Jesus himself. Politics, science, morality, behavior, right? Uh, what they understand to be inconsistencies in the scripture. I've never seen one person walk away from the faith because they looked squarely at Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done for them, and they have found him wanting. Never spoken to one person who says, 
I can't bring myself to believe in a God who would come to me, die on a cross for me, forgive my sins, give me eternal life, save me forever. I can't believe in a God. Right? People have all kinds of objections to all kinds of things in Christianity. Not many have objections about Jesus himself. All kinds of reservations and concerns, all kinds of things that make them feel uneasy. But the one thing about Christianity that tends to cause doubt to dissipate, tends to instill faith and instill hope and instill confidence and instill a trust that is deep and abiding, the one thing in Christianity that does that also happens to be the main thing about Christianity. It's Jesus Christ himself who he is, what he has done to save us from our sin. I I would submit that it's difficult, maybe even impossible, to truly look at Jesus, see who he is, and then respond with doubt or fear or unbelief. Everything about Christianity revolves around Jesus. Anchor your faith to Jesus. Take your doubts to Jesus. Let everything else kind of revolve around him. So Jesus gives us these tools. Verse 44, immerse yourself in the word of God. Verse 45, pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of your heart. Verse 46, look at, gaze at, behold, stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and meditate on who he is and what he has done. Verse 47 is the reason why we need to do all this. Because of the task at hand, right? The repentance and forgiveness of sins has to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. I need, I need you guys to overcome your doubt and your fear because we've got work to do. We've got a task. We've got a mission. People are living and dying apart from God, separated from God. They need to experience the forgiveness of God. That will only happen if we take the gospel to the world. People need to hear the gospel in Jerusalem. They need to hear the gospel in Judea, in Samaria, to all the ends of the earth, right? Rome, Corinth, Europe, America, Asia, Africa, South America. People need to hear the gospel so that they can trust in Christ and be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to God. That's the task at hand. And... Verse 48, you are the ones that need to do it. You are witnesses of these things. So we need to overcome our doubts with these ways because there's a task at hand that we need to do. I recognize that you're racked with guilt, or racked with doubt and fear and unbelief, but I need you. You are at the center of my plans to build my Church. That's how God works. That's how God, God uses people that are weak and frail, people who don't appear to be qualified, people who don't appear to be ready, people who look like they don't have what it takes. God uses them to accomplish his purposes. And look at the language he uses. You are witnesses of these things. That should be encouraging. Because what he doesn't say is, you 
have to accomplish. Right? Uh, I, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus has these grand, glorious plans for his church and for the gospel going forth to the world. And his plans are for us to be a part of it, but his plans are not for us to do it, will it to happen by our own strength. Rather, his, his plans are for us to be witnesses. Right? The, the Great Commission doesn't call for us to save people. It doesn't call for us to die for other people's sins. It doesn't call for us to accomplish people's salvation or to, to you know, brute force drag them into the kingdom of heaven. The Great Commission calls for us to be witnesses to the glory of Jesus. And a witness, I googled it, I looked it up. A witness is someone who sees something and then tells someone else that they saw it. That's what a witness is. And that's what God, God is calling us to do. That The, the Great Commission is God calling us to be witnesses, right? right? The, the pressure's off. You don't have to die for people's sins. You don't have to convert people to become Christians. You just have to see the person and work of Jesus and tell other people ab- about him. The LeBron James came into the, into the league, and there was an um, ad campaign around him that said, we are all witnesses. The implication was LeBron is, you know, we are, you know, he very well might be the best basketball player of all time, certainly one of them, and we all are watching his career unfold in front of our very eyes. We are, the the, the ad campaign was not saying you sitting on your couch watching LeBron are a basketball player. It says you are watching a basketball player, like you're a witness to it. Jesus is saying you are a witness. Your job is to Look, watch, observe, experience the person and work of Jesus dying for your sins, saving you, giving you eternal salvation, and then tell others about it. So the weight comes off our shoulders. The weight that we feel, it's on me to, to you know, make this person become a Christian. It's on me to make this church grow. It's on me to, you know, actually manufacture spiritual growth in my spouse, in my kids, in my friends, in my family members. That weight's off. The responsibility is to be a witness, to see something, namely Jesus, and tell others about it. That's it. Then verse 49, and behold, so he's, so we need to overcome our doubts in these ways because there's a task at hand. There's a mission that we have to do. We are the ones who have to do it. But, verse 49, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel like you're all alone. I will be with you. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit, John 14, John 16. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. You're not alone. All, all, you know, Matthew 28, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples, teach them, baptize them. But remember, I am with you always until the end of the age. I'm sending you out on a task, out on a mission, out on the great commission. But don't be afraid that you're not up for it because the reality is you're not going alone. I'm going with you. The Holy Spirit is going with you. All you have to do is be a witness 
to see the glory of God and then tell others about it. So Jesus appears to his disciples. They're overcome with doubt, with fear, with unbelief. He confronts their doubts. He reminds them that he is the one who's going to build his church. He gives them practical application, practical advice for how to overcome their doubt. Throw yourself into the word of God. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Look to the person and work of Jesus. Remember how he died for you in your place, for your sins. Remember how he rose from the dead on the third day. Remember Jesus. Which... Incidentally, is exactly what we do when we celebrate communion together. We remember the person and work of Jesus. We remember that Jesus' body was broken for our sins. We remember that Jesus' blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven of our sins. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he, he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, then we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. You guys are going to come up and play one more song when they do. Come down the middle. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have some people up here kind of uh, distributing the elements. Come down the middle, grab them, head back to your seats along the side. The bread's gluten-free. There's uh, individually wrapped ones that you can have if you prefer. Come take the elements. Take a moment to remember Jesus. Remember the gospel. Confess your sin. Receive the grace of Jesus. And then we'll eat and drink together as a family while we, while we sing together. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him so that he will save you, and then you can take communion with us next time. I'm going to pray, and as we do, if the guys want to come forward and grab the elements and kind of stand two over here, two over here, and then people can kind of come, come up when we're, when we're hearing the music. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death and resurrection. We thank you that even as we experience doubt and fear and unbelief, we thank you that you have come to us. You have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your son dying on the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we can see the person and work of Jesus and trust in him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.